Last week we started a series of conversations on holiness. And we said that holiness by definition, when we take the biblical words that are translated holy, it means primarily two things. First of all, it means utter uniqueness, separateness, set-apartness. Secondly, it means moral purity. And then we laid down the absolutely incredible, exciting, scary, almost impossible thought that God intends for us to be holy. So we want to continue that conversation today. John Eldridge wrote a book several years ago on holiness called The Utter Relief of Holiness. And in the introduction to it, he says this, this book emerged out of a series of talks I gave to a live audience. I asked them what came to mind when they heard the word holiness. These are their words, boring, denial, discipline, unattainable, striving, separation, hard. Eldridge acknowledges that that's not an inspiring or a very hopeful list of words. And to make matters more challenging, the list is partly true. Holiness is difficult, so why pursue it? Well, as it turns out, holiness is vitally important to our health, our freedom, and our future. This morning, we're going to look at seven reasons why we should choose holiness, why holiness is important, both from an an objective perspective and also from a, a personal benefit perspective. And then we're going to look at a specific sin pattern. We're going to be a little controversial this morning. We're going to look at a specific sin pattern, but I don't want you to get lost in the example. Again, it'll be a little controversial, but we're going to look at that sin pattern, first of all, because it will give us a look at the way of holiness, at least the mental framework for holiness. And then it will also allow us to be honest about the costliness of holiness. And then we're going to give an assignment this morning. I'm going to offer us an assignment for this week. Okay, so why is holiness important? Seven reasons. Number one, we must be holy because God commands it. Matthew 5.20, Jesus says this, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, those of you who grew up Catholic, you are, we all are, but those of you who grew up Catholic will occasionally hear this from you guys. You are very familiar with levels of spirituality, and it's almost as if the saints are here, and then the priests are somewhat below them, and everybody else is down here. Well, What Jesus is saying here is essentially the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the saints and the priests of their day, unless your righteousness, your goodness, and your connectedness with God, your right relatedness to God, unless it surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you are in a bad place. We usually emphasize, and rightly so, that our faith is not essentially about behavior. I've said repeatedly, in fact, I said recently here on a Sunday morning, our faith is not a checklist of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs. Thank goodness that it's not. And yet, here is Jesus saying that your lives should be hitting all of those rights and not hitting any of those wrongs. Later in that same sermon, Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The first followers got it. 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul writes this, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And remember last week we said that word sanctified, it really is the same word as our word holy. 
Paul is acknowledging it's God's will that you get holified. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, Peter says this, but just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. For it's written, and now he, he quotes the Old Testament, so this is evidently not just a New Testament idea, be holy because I am holy. God commands our holiness. Number two, our holiness is part of why Jesus came. In other words, the life and ministry and death of Jesus point toward our holiness. Another way to say that is that our holiness is a part of God's purpose for us. Ephesians 5, 25, 26 say this, speaking to husbands, the apostle Paul says, hey husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, which is pretty epic husbands, but this is the point. Now he begins to describe, he teases out that Christ loving the church deal and he says this, just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Titus 2.14, again the Apostle Paul says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's a part of why Jesus came. Listen, Jesus does more than forgive us of our sins. He also breaks sin's power. Over the last few weeks, I've been reading a book on holiness. It's called Holiness. Imagine that. It's written by a British pastor from the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was a very influential pastor in the English-speaking world. His name is J.C. Ryle. And uh, this book has become a classic over the years. On the topic of holiness, Ryle says this about this point. To talk of men being saved from the guilt of sin without being at the same time saved from sin's dominion in their hearts, is a contradiction of the entire witness of Scripture. Our holiness is a part of why Jesus came. Third reason why we choose holiness, holiness is the evidence and the only real evidence. Holiness is the evidence that we have a connection to Christ. Holiness is the evidence that we have a connection to Christ. In Matthew 25, Jesus uses an elaborate parable to explain what allows people to be emitted into an eternal fellowship with God and, on the other hand, what leads people to be separated from God. Some of you know this section. To the fellowship group, to those that will be eternally connected to God, Jesus says this, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and... You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes. You clothed me. I was sick. You looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. To the group that gets separated from God, he says this, I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't look after me. So the the scale tips our way, one way or the other, based on our behavior. Now, the point is not that we are made right with God by our behavior. The point is that when we are made right with God, our behavior begins to change. Slowly, over time, we look more and more like Him. Holiness is evidence that we have a connection to Christ. Listen, holiness for us will result from our ability to obey him. 
that's essentially a, it's a synonym, holiness and obedience, almost. And Jesus reminded us that our obedience is the evidence that we love him. He couldn't have been clearer. He said, if you love me, you will obey me. Holiness is the evidence that we have a connection to Christ. Fourth, holiness wins the world around us. Jesus' friend Peter put it like this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles in this world, in your culture, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they're not your friends, yet they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Our holiness wins the world around us. About the same point that Pastor J.C. Ryle said this, listen to this, your life is an argument that no one can escape. Our holiness wins the world around us. Fifth, our holiness provides us with a sense of God's presence in our lives. Our holiness provides us with a sense of God's presence in our lives. Listen to Jesus' best friend John's explanation. John said this, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Later he says, he's talking about doing the right thing. And, you know, our faith is not just saying stuff, but it's doing stuff. It's putting those words into action. And he's talking specifically about when we act lovingly toward others. And he follows that with this. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how our hearts are set at rest in his presence. This is how we overcome guilty conscience. This is how we know that we are connected to him. This is how we sense our connection to him and sense his presence. Anybody feeling disconnected from God? It may be that we're not paying enough attention to our holiness. Our holiness provides us with a sense of God's presence in our lives. Sixth, holiness is the ultimate source of our true and utter relief. Holiness is the ultimate source of our true and utter relief. In other words, our long-term comfort in this life depends on our holiness. Our long-term comfort in this life depends on our holiness. J.C. Ryle again says, God has so wisely ordered it that our well-being and our well-doing are linked together. Isn't that good? I want to read you a page out of Eldridge's The Utter Relief of Holiness. Eldridge says this, now, why the utter relief of holiness? It may seem strange at first to have that title because I don't think most folks look at holiness as an utter relief. Hard, perhaps. Boring, if we're honest. Maybe necessary, like flossing. A level of spirituality we might attain one day, but a relief However, look at it this way, Eldred says. Ask the anorexic young girl how she would feel if she simply no longer struggled with food, diet, or exercise. If she simply never gave it another thought. Ask the man consumed with jealousy how he would feel if he woke up one day to discover that all he once felt jealous over was simply gone. Ask the raging 
person, the insecure person, what it would be like to be free of rage or insecurity or the alcoholic, what it would be like to be completely free from addiction. Take the things you struggle with and ask yourself, what would life be like if I never struggled with this again? It would be an utter relief, an absolute utter relief. Exactly. Now, in order to get there, you need both wholeness and holiness. You can't find genuine wholeness without genuine goodness. I think if we could recover a vision of what holiness actually is, we would be absolutely captured by it. I think we would see it as not only completely desirable, but attainable as well. King David, the Old Testament, was a man who knew his character flaws felt the anguish of regret over deeply violating God's law and God's character and God's desires, spent many tormented nights wrestling with his failings, and yet, in Psalm 119, David wrote this, I run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. Have you ever put those two things together, freedom of heart and the passionate pursuit of God's commands? The two go hand in hand. Genuine holiness restores human beings. Restored human beings possess genuine holiness. Holiness is the ultimate source of our true and utter relief. And finally, number seven, we were designed for holiness. It's what our lives are supposed to look like. They're supposed to look holy. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul says, For he chose us in him, that means in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Eldridge again says, God is restoring the creation he made. What you see in Jesus is what he's after in you. Seven reasons why holiness is, is important. Okay, now I want to offer an example. I don't intend for this to be uh, provocative, I don't intend for this to be upsetting. I intend for this to be a clear way to illustrate the way of holiness and the cost of holiness. So bear with me this morning. A few of you will be tempted to be offended. Please don't. Just stay with me and until we get to the unwrapping the way of holiness and the cost of holiness. Some of you will be tempted to say amen. Please don't say amen. We know how you feel. So, again, don't get lost in the specifics of the illustration. So, as an example this morning, let's take the sin pattern, and I believe it is a sin pattern. Let's take the sin pattern of homosexuality. George Kahungu was telling me this morning that George drives Uber sometimes in D.C., and, and there's a march this weekend, uh, yesterday and today. Somewhat appropriate that we would be talking about this. If you're visiting, you need to know this is not the kind of church where we always talk about this. I, I never do. Some of you have complained to me over the years why we don't talk more about homosexuality and, and what's wrong with it. And I want to tell you, frankly, we don't talk more about it because most of us don't struggle with it. I know there are a few who do, but most of us do not struggle with same-sex attraction, so I don't need to confess someone else's sin. I need to confess my own, and so do you. Having said that, 
I believe that the practice of homosexuality, the practice of homosexuality, not same-sex desires, but I believe the practice of homosexuality is against God's desire and it's against his design. The practice of homosexuality will never land someone in God's best place for them. And I believe that based on a clear reading of Scripture. I admire, honestly, there is increasingly today a biblical argument uh, being made in, in favor of affirming um, monogamous, loving, same-sex relationships. I think it is a biblical argument that is unconvincing, to say the least, but a biblical argument is being made for that. But apart from that, let's stand apart from that for a second, and let's say with humility, let's acknowledge, and I just want you, those of you who disagree with me, I want you to stipulate to this for a second. I believe that it's wrong. I believe it's sinful. I believe it's not God's best for us. And I, I believe that the Bible teaches that. So what would be the argument for the practice of homosexuality? Why would someone practice homosexuality? And if you're not a Christian, if you're gay and you're not a Christian, or if you're a Christian but you really don't care about the biblical argument one way or the other, the essential argument for practicing homosexual behavior is, number one, it's twofold. Number one, this is what I want. This is really what I want. This is my fundamental desire. And parentheses, how could that be wrong? This is what I want. Secondly, I should be able to do what I want because you're able to do what you want. In other words, a fairness issue. So a couple of things spring to mind for me when I think of that argument. Number one, that seems like a pretty weak foundation for building a life choice. But before we belittle it, I want to hasten to add, it's the way in which most of us make most of our decisions. It's the reason we went to Disney World last year. I want to, and I should be able to do what I want to do. It's the reason we watched the most recent Netflix series. I want to, and I should be able to do what I want to do. It's probably the reason we bought the car we bought. It's probably the reason you took the last job you took or didn't take the last job that was offered to you. I want to, and I should be able to do what I want to do. This is the way of most of our thinking. This is not the way of holiness. The way of holiness, the way of holiness, the mental framework for holiness, essentially asks three things. One, how can I please God? Pleasing God is what I was designed for. Pleasing God will always build on my sense of connection to him. So how can I please God? The way of holiness will always ask, how can God most be reflected in my actions? This is why Jesus came, to create God-likeness in us. This is the ultimate source of my true and utter relief. So how can God most be reflected in what I do today? And a third thing that the way of holiness will always ask is, what will Jesus do? If I act like Jesus, that will win the world, or at least the part of the world that I'm in touch with. And this is what God expects, demands, and commands of me. So what would Jesus do? That's the way of holiness. And far, far too often, you and I, 
not those people out there in the culture. Not those people that are marching this weekend in D.C. Far too often, you and I do not walk in and think in and decide in the way of holiness. We walk and think and decide in the way of, this is what I want to do, and it feels right, and I should be able to do what I want to do. It's only fair. I feel like I'm at my best when I do what I want. So it makes sense to me. That's what I feel like I'm going to be at my best. I'm going to experience the most comfort. I'm going to experience the most relief. I'm going to experience the most pleasure. I feel like I will be all of those things when I do what I want. But the Bible makes a different argument. We are at our best when we do what God wants. And he is unpleased with anything else. Okay, so, the way of holiness, but how about the costliness of it? Because we have to be honest. So, let's take our example of homosexuality again. Realizing that some of you do not agree with my position for various reasons, but let's use it as an illustration, because I think it powerfully illustrates this. So, if I'm right, and I think I am, if homosexuality is against God's desire and against his design, then what is the solution for the person who has same-sex desires? What do they do? What should the person with same-sex desires, how should they then live? Well, in the short run, celibacy. And for many gay people that I have known, it's also the long-term solution. I've heard testimonies, I'm sure you have as well, of those folks who believe that their desires have been changed by God, and God can do anything. He changes our desires. But for many practicing, hopefully not practicing, homosexuals, the solution, the God-honoring solution, the holiness solution is celibacy. So I want you to think for a minute this morning about how costly that is. We are asking someone We are encouraging someone, emotionally and spiritually, to take the most intimate, one of the most pleasurable, the most enriching, and most fulfilling experiences, and say to them, you can never have that. Never. You can never experience that. Even though it may feel loving and warm, you can never experience that. Think about how costly that is. And that will give you a taste of what Jesus meant when he says, look, I want to be honest. Those of you who are going to follow me, you need to take up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow me. That's what it means. Holiness is costly. And of course, we could have chosen some more less controversial, more widely acknowledged and more widely applicable sin patterns, couldn't we have? We could talk about alcohol abuse. We could talk about those who need alcohol to get to sleep most or all nights, who use it to calm them down at the end of every day. We could talk about pornography and the use of pornography to give ourselves a burst of life and meaning, and pleasure. We could talk about food. Think about food for a minute. 
Some of you were already thinking about food anyway. Think about the ways that we use and misuse food. Those of us who eat too much and those of us who eat too little. And I want you to think about how difficult that struggle is. And I want you to be proud of those among us who are in that struggle and stay in the struggle. They don't just surrender. I want you to think about the cost that they have to pay every day because you can't avoid food. you got to eat to stay alive. So that struggle confronts you at least three times a day. Holiness is costly, deeply so. Why in the world would we stay in that struggle? Why would we pay that cost? Because it provides us a sense of God's presence. Because it's the only place where we can find a true sense of utter relief because we were designed for it. Because God commands it. It's why Jesus came. It's the evidence that we have a connection to Christ. And ultimately, it's what wins the world. Holiness is costly, but it's worth every penny of the cost. I'm going to give you an assignment general assignment, and then I'm going to give some specific applications to the assignment that have really, uh, over the years, have been really, really helpful for me. What I want us to do this week is to take a step toward holiness. This week, I want you to take a step toward holiness. This week. And I want that step to be active. I don't want you in your heart and mind this morning to go, thanks, Ed, that was good. I especially like Number five, that's awesome. Now, I, I want you to take an actual, practical step toward holiness this week. Knowing how tough this was, in that same sermon I was referencing early, he said, look, if you've got a struggle, let me give you an illustration. If your eye offends you, then don't just determine, I'm not going to use that eye. No, don't put a patch over the eye. Because... It's too easy to peek. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Gouge your eye out. It takes active sacrifice and active steps in order to move toward holiness. So, let's take some steps toward holiness this week, and I want to give you three options. Option number one, I have made it a practice over the years. I've done this with a number of you three or four times a year, I will grab one or two or three of you and I'll have what I call a week of quiet times. We just meet in the morning, whatever time is convenient for the group of people that I'm meeting with. Some of you it's 5.30, some of you it's 7.30. For seven days in a row, we will meet and break open the Bible and pray. I usually, when I'm arranging this, I'll send an email out and say, hey, if you have regular time with the Lord, I'm sorry I'm going to steal your time, but I'd like for you to meet with me for a week and you'll come read whatever I'm reading in the Bible. Usually when I do this, the first couple of days, especially if I don't know you very well, the first couple of days, it's a little awkward because you're thinking, the pastor, and he must have some agenda. He wants me to do something or he's seen me somewhere or something. And I'm just needing discipline in my life. So we read for a while, and then I say, hey, let's pray. And then we pray, and then we leave. 
And about day three, everybody starts to relax, and we start to give honest observations, and occasionally somebody will say, I don't understand that at all, and I'll say, me either. And by the time we get to about day six, it's usually awesome. And once in a while, one or two or three of us will need to confess something, because that's what happens when you get in God's presence. You want to be holy, and you want to be rid of stuff. You want the relief that holiness brings. I want you to have a week of quiet times with someone. Arrange it today. Before you leave this morning, or email someone this afternoon, and find the week, and find the the two people that meet your schedule constraints and spend five days or spend seven days and wake up in the morning and go to Panera or go to someone's house and sit with your Bible and feel awkward, and by day four, magic will happen. I want you to have a week of quiet times with someone this week. Or, no, no, I want you to arrange it this week. It may be three weeks from now before you can actually get to it. But I want you to make the arrangement. Have a week of quiet time. Or, number two option, I want you to take a four-hour prayer retreat. I said this to Diane last night, and she said, why don't you make it like 30 minutes and let's be realistic. Who has four hours? And I said, you unholy person, you. (laughs) Did not say that at all. Just far holier than I am and prays much more than I do. You can do a four-hour prayer retreat right? Sleep one hour less and don't watch three hours of television. Boom, done. Drop the mic. There's your four hours, right? So take a four-hour prayer retreat. And let me tell you what to do with your four hours in prayer. So at first, start out by praying. But just, God, I'm here. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to spend some time with you, and I want to connect, and I just want to hear what you have to say to me. And I just want you to start praying and pour your heart out. And if your experience is anything like mine, some of you have heard me say this before, but I've, I've done this kind of thing many times. And I, I'm a pastor, super holy. I go for it. I'm praying, and I'm knocking myself out, and I'm sweating, and I'm so godly, and I stand up, and my back is aching because I've been at it so long, and I look over, and it's been seven minutes. <laughs> so I want you to, first of all, start... Just pray, and then pick a book of the Bible. Now, if you're only going to do a four-hour deal, it needs to be, you know, like one of the letters. Read the whole thing, start to finish. How often do you do that? Not very often. Read the whole book, start to finish. And then close the book and just mull. Just let it sink in, and now start praying again. And pray for the people that are on your prayer list. And then go down to level two for the people. You don't like them as much, but pray for those level two people as well. And then just pray for the people that just popcorn into your head. Four-hour prayer retreat. You can do that this week. That's just your schedule. You can arrange it. Option three, take a 30-minute walk every day this week. 30 minutes every day. And as you're doing so, Memorize the first half of Romans 6. So Phil Salee taught me this trick. 
Go to your voice dealy thing on here. It's the technical term, voice dealy. And record with pausing. You know, read like a phrase, pause for a few seconds. That's how I do it. Pause for a few seconds. And read the first half of Romans 6. And then you read the first half of Romans 6, you pause after every phrase, and then while you're walking, you just put earphones on, you walk, do a phrase, turn it off, and just say that phrase over and over. Next phrase, say that phrase over and over. Memorize the first half of Romans 6, 30 minutes a day. Good for the heart, good for the body, good for the spirit. Take a step toward holiness this week. Now, these options may not work for you. They're great. So you're Looney Tunes if these don't work, but they may not work for you. So you pick one that does. Take an actual step toward holiness this week. Invite more of him into more of you this week. Let's close in prayer. So Lord, we have heard you, and we give you permission to do what you must to uh, sanctify us. Sanctify us, Lord. This morning, we want to obey you. We acknowledge that it is why Jesus came, our holiness. So there's, there's so much at stake. And Lord, we're honest with ourselves and with those around us. Our holiness is the evidence, and the only real evidence, that we have a connection to you. Father, our holiness wins the world. So for that alone... We ask that you would sanctify us for the sake of our children, for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of our co-workers. Make us holy. We are deeply thankful, those of us, Father, who have tracked with you for a long time. What we usually think about and what we usually focus on is how far we have to go because it, it feels like the longer we're with you, the, the more we see of what we're not. But this morning, I pray for many here today that you would remind them of what they are and the changes that you've made in their lives already, evidence that you're at work. And I thank you for the sense of your presence that often invades us and that you provide. And Lord, we also long for holiness because it is the source of utter relief. We long to be set free from those things that have us trapped. God, this is what we were made for. So hear us. Okay, stand with me if you would. Let's close with a hymn. I want you to do this one prayerfully. So in an aid to that, I'm going to ask you to sing this with your eyes closed. So I'm going to feed you the lyrics as John and Becca sang. Lord, I need you, and I want you to sing this with your eyes closed and make this our closing prayer this morning. Lord, I come, I confess. Lord, I come, I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. Without you, I fall apart. You are the one that guides my heart.
Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Teach my song to rise to you. Teach my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way. When temptation comes my way. When I cannot stand, I'll fall when on I you. Stand, I'll fall on okay, you. choir, Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Let's do that again. Teach my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way, when temptation comes my when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. that you would inspire each of us to take a step this week toward you, toward holiness. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Speak to someone. Go in peace.